And so it's, it's this position that you often see frequently in play, and you often see it across different um, species of canids, but it's actually something that's found more widely in social carnivores. So there's some observations that you can see play bows um, in lions. and welcome to Dog Lab. Today's episode is Playbows and Visual Perception with Dr. Sarah Beozier. This is a fun one, and the discussion will help you understand the function and evolution of your dog's playbows and how your dog visually sees the world. Sarah is the director of the Thinking Dog Center at CUNY Hunter College, where she focuses on studying the behavior and cognition of domestic dogs and other canids. Dr. Beozier began her career at the University of Michigan, where she studied the function of the play bow in adult pet dogs throughout her undergraduate and master's degrees. She has worked as a research assistant for various canine cognition and behavior research groups, including Duke Canine Cognition Center, the Clever Dog Lab, and the Wolf Science Center. Dr. Beozier earned her PhD at La Trobe University in Australia under the supervision of Dr. Pauline Bennett and the Anthrozoology Research Group. Her dissertation focused on evaluating whether or not dogs are susceptible to visual illusions. More recently, at the Thinking Dog Center, her work has expanded to include applied research topics, including dog training methodologies and sheltering practices, and was actually my thesis advisor for my master's degree. Dr. Beozier has published her research in peer-reviewed scientific journals, presented her findings at conferences, and has been featured on NPR Science Friday, the New York Daily News, Gizmodo, and Curiosity Stream. So with that, here is Dr. Sarah Beozier. Dr. Sarah Beozier, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, really exciting. So before we get started, tell us about the Thinking Dog Center at Hunter College, which is at the City University of New York, uh, and what led you to get interested in canine cognition? Well, the Thinking Dog Center um, at Hunter actually empirically uh, tries to investigate our best friends, the domestic dog, and we study a variety of different aspects of dog behavior and cognition. And uh, our ultimate goal is is to increase how much we know and increase our understanding of our um, fun and furry friends. We want to know how they think about the world around them, how they interact with us. Um, and, and ultimately, we, we want to improve our relationship with them so that they have happy and, and fun and amazing lives. And we want to be a part of that. Yeah. And then what, um, how did you personally get, get, get into this field? How did I personally get into this field? Actually, it, I think just luck, actually. Um, I was an undergrad at the University of Michigan, and I took a fantastic first year seminar for freshmen which happened to be with a researcher, uh, Dr. Barb Smuts, who actually studied primates and had gotten into studying dogs later in her career. And this was a fantastic course. And it was all about human-animal relations and interactions and dog-dog friendships. And ultimately, at the end of the class, I I thought, oh, I've made the biggest mistake of my life. I've gone to this university where there is no program that focuses on animals. Um, and I considered transferring to a state school with a, an agriculture program because I thought, oh, if I want to study dogs, I'm going to have to be a veterinarian. I'm going to have to go into this sort of more biological, physiological field to study them. And after talking to her outside of class, this professor of mine, Dr. Smuts, uh, she kind of informed me that there was this whole world within psychology and anthropology where researchers were interested in studying what animals know. And, and her uh, sort of point was that dogs are a great way to do this because they're so easily accessible. You see them every corner you turn. And so I thought, oh, okay, maybe I haven't made the worst mistake of my life going to <laughs> this, this university without an animal behavior program. And I sort of just fell into it. And, and after that, continued finding all these amazing opportunities with all these researchers and, and totally discovered that my childhood dream of working with animals was actually possible, not just as a, as a veterinarian, but that there's actually a way that you can get involved in dog behavior and dog cognition um, through psychology, through anthropology, through um, 
human animal relations and and it's it's changing and and reforming and it's becoming its own thing yeah yeah definitely and so so that's good for especially for any people out there looking to to get into this field yeah because you don't just need to be a veterinarian anymore and these these uh, research departments and the research is becoming more popular. Uh, and, and maybe for our, our listeners out there who don't, I think most people kind of know what cognition is, but you know, it's used a lot as sort of like a broad term. So I thought maybe if you could just, you know, maybe clarify what cognition is, the difference between cognition and behavior. And so that way it kind of, you know, tease up the conversation here. Yeah. Uh, so cognition is, it's a, it's a term where you'll find multiple definitions for. Um, what I like to think of is more uh, of thinking of cognition as how dogs problem solve in particular. That's what I'm interested in. So how, if I give them a problem, how do they navigate around it and what strategies do they use? And I might have my own interpretation of what strategies might be the best strategies or the most intense, or um, you might say, uh, cognitively demanding strategies. So perhaps a strategy that might require more brain power. But in a sense, we're, we're making those assumptions based off of what we know about the way we interpret the world. And that's not to say that dogs have other little sort of quick hacks or have um, these special uh, specialized adaptations in which they can uh, manipulate humans in various ways. And I like the word uh, manipulate because it's sort of... Um, it ascribes a sort of emotion to this as well. Um, and on a personal level, I do, I do like to invoke that with dogs, but we don't know necessarily what it is that they know. So when I study cognition and when I look at behavior, I'm really looking at if I give them something to deal with, if I give them a problem, how are they going to solve it? And sometimes they, they do it in a way that's completely different from what I expect. And, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It just means that they're going about it in a way that I didn't think of, um, which is interesting. And that allows us to compare and contrast their problem-solving capabilities to ours, but also to other species. Um, and given dogs' unique history with us and the fact that they live in our homes, they've been domesticated, we've artificially selected them for a variety of traits, um, it's interesting to see how they might compare to something like the chimpanzee, our, our closest living uh, relative. Because if they do have unique skill sets, particularly uh, we think that dogs have these unique social skill sets, that tells us something about how they've learned to uh, live with us, how they've adapted to our lifestyle. Um, and that can tell us more about what they know and how they understand the world around them. So generally, we do actually measure behavior when we're also looking at cognition because we're looking at how dogs problem solve and we would just want to see how do they interact with uh, the conditions in which we put them in. Yeah, I love how you use the word manipulate because I know this is probably not scientific, but I definitely think my rat terriers manipulate me on a daily <laughs> basis. But um, but I find it interesting that you use that word because I, you know, for for a while there, I felt like we were doing a, a bit of a disservice to dogs because we were almost treating them. We we weren't really understanding them as these, you know, thinking, intelligent beings. So both in terms of, you know, sort of the, um, you know, old kind of like older school kind of, you know, dog training stuff. But, he, but even, even as things evolved, it, it became more like, sometimes I felt like we were almost treating dogs as like input output machines. And what I really love about a lot of this new research is that, um, you know, what, while, while sort of behavior analysis and that type of work is really important when dealing with, you know, behavior modification. Uh, it, it's, it's one area of, of, of research and application, whereas um, the stuff you're working on is really trying to describe their, it's, it's really trying to, it's almost like you're trying to give us a peek into their inner lives and how they, how they understand the world, how they move through the world, which is just completely mind blowing and so different than ours. So yeah, it's, really, really excited by the work that, that, that you guys do. And I think your, you, you know, the research both you and, and your colleagues are doing are, it's just giving us a whole, a whole new way of seeing things. And I can't imagine what's going to happen in sort of like the next five, 10, 15 years in terms of how we understand this. Definitely. We're, we're making strides and, and we're learning a lot more about dogs and other species in particular. And, and yes, we're ha still having semantic debates about definitions to use. And we're still having, um, uh, you know, controversial discussions about uh, what do animals really feel? 
Um, but it's sort of become something where we're recognizing that it, it may not be necessarily fair to say that it's something that they don't have. And, and it's interesting to think about it because on a, in, in thinking about this on an evolutionary spectrum, it's sort of bizarre to assume that humans and just humans or maybe humans and primates might just have all of these sort of cognitive or emotional abilities that are completely disconnected from any other animal. And so I think it's best to think about this maybe um, as a sort of, uh, not a linear scale, but maybe a sort of transition where depending on the environment in which you live, certain skills are going to be helpful and other skills are not. And so it may just be that the degree in which these uh, skills are present, whether or not it's a behavior, it's a, a type of critical thinking or an emotion is, is really um, varied by degree rather than is it there or is it not. Um, but that's actually, it's one of the reasons why I've been interested in, in looking at cognition and also perception, because if uh, the dog interprets their visual world around them in a way that's different from what is physically present, it sort of tells us that somehow they're using their brain power to uh, change that information or adapt it into, into a way in which that makes the most sense for them or to change it in a way that evolutionarily makes sense for them. Um, and so that might tell us that they don't actually process information like stimulus response automatons, that there is some processing going on inside the head um, that they are doing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it, and it's cool too, that you're actually looking at not just dogs, but you know, also dingles and wolves as well. And so I know that two research areas that, that, that you're working on that we're going to talk today uh, is both the function of play bows and then that visual perception uh, that you spoke about. So so we'll start with play bows first. I think most people know what a play bow is, but just to make sure there might be some people who don't don't really know that term. So can you describe what play bows are and why are you studying this in multiple species like wolves, dingoes, and dogs besides the fact that it just sounds really friggin' cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So besides the fact that it's really fun to look at um, uh, how dogs play, I mean, that in itself is, is very rewarding, I must say. Um, the play bow in particular, it's something that I got started on very early um, on, and I was just interested in what it, what it meant. Like, why would you put yourself in this position? Because it doesn't it's uh, just to give some background, it's a high rump crouch position in which the forelimbs of the dog are primarily on the ground, starting at the elbows. And then you see this nice little curve in the spine. So the booty is up in the air, sometimes with the tail wagging, sometimes not. Um, and that's generally what a play bow looks like. And so it's, it's this position that you often see frequently in play, and you often see it across different um, species of canids, but it's actually something that's found more widely in social carnivores. So there's some observations that you can see play bows um, in lions, um, oh. which I, I haven't seen, but if anybody has any uh, insight, I'd love to get some insight into that. Um, but the reason why I've been interested in this is, is because originally I was reading a paper on playbows, um, and the paper suggested that playbows might be used to clarify easily misinterpretable behavior. So if you had done something wrong, in a sense, that could be misinterpreted, you would want to perform a playbow in order to sort of clarify, yes, I'm still being nice, I'm still playing, this is fine, we're having a great interaction, I didn't really mean to just bite you or nibble on you or something like that. Um, and so I thought, oh, this would be really cool to look at. Um, and originally my idea was like, maybe this is something like a handshake. Like maybe you mm. do this signal more often with uh, uh, individuals that you don't know because you need to clarify over and over again um, that this is something that is a polite action. Whereas if you, it's, you can think about it with friends, right? You can joke with your friends about a couple of things and they know not to take you seriously. And so perhaps if we kind of impose that context on it, you wouldn't need to perform a play bow every five seconds just to clarify sort of your intentions. Um, and in the end, that's not actually what we ended up studying. Um, but we started at the ground floor, which was really, okay, what, when do you see the playbow being used and, and in what context? So does it have a specific function within play? And if so, then the question was, 
how is it different in dogs compared to other closely related canids? So potentially, is there an effect of domestication um, on this signal? And, and what might that be? So what we did was we looked at the behaviors that we saw occurring immediately before and after the play bow for um, dogs. We looked at um, adult dogs and puppies. And generally what we found was that uh, it seemed to sort of reinitiate some sort of playful interaction. So what you often saw was that two, the two individuals would be really stationary in some sort of pause. Someone play bows and then runs away and then that gets followed by a chase. And so that's kind of the pattern that we see. With adult dogs, there was a little bit more nuance. We often saw that play bows would have um, sort of synchronous behaviors associated with it, meaning that the individuals would sort of synchronize their movements together. So they'd run away together or they'd mutually rear up together, or sometimes mm. they'd even play bow to one another and do it really so timely that it was really hard to tell actually who was play bowing first. Um, we didn't really see that so much with the puppies. Uh, we still saw the runaway chase scenario, but uh, I think the puppies, they're a little bit young and they're still trying to m learn their motor patterns and, and get all settled with their with their bodies. And so we saw less of that sort of synchrony with them. Is it almost like um, like with people, how we mirror each other's behaviors when we're engaging sometimes and, and, and when we're getting along? Is it... Is it sort of something like that maybe why the adult dogs sort of synchronize? Yeah. And one of the interesting things um, that I'm sort of uh, curious to look at um, or I'm intrigued to look at in the future is whether or not uh, familiarity has anything to do with this. So is it that mm. the more familiar you are with your play partner that you are sort of more in sync or potentially it could go the other way around that you feel like you have to mirror someone that you don't know as well um, because you need to align with them and sort of create that that bond of some sort. But yeah, it, it very much so could be sort of a parallel to what we see in humans where we start kind of mimicking gestures or, or um, making facial expressions um, that sort of align with what our partner is doing to kind of facilitate the interaction. Yeah, that's really cool. And it's almost like... Uh... Like if I walked into uh, a building and I saw one of my friends there, I could probably go up behind him and give him a hug and he would probably look for a second. Oh, it's you like, cool, whatever. But like you would never do that to someone you didn't know. Um, so it's almost like with people, you know, you're permitted more social liberty almost with in terms of how you interact with them. So that question on whether they do it more, do it like are they synchronized more or less with with dogs that they're familiar with? I think is yeah, that, that's that's fascinating. Yeah. And, and so then we started looking at this behavior in, in wolves, actually wolf puppies, because we wanted to see, okay, how does this match up to with what we're seeing with um, in, the, in the dogs, both the ad adults and the pups. And what we found is that it's very similar, except there's a, there's a couple of nuanced differences. With the wolves, um, it seems like they go through this whole, we're pausing, we're stationary, we're taking a break, and then somebody will play bow um, and uh, sort of uh, run away. And it's like the play partner every once in a while decides, meh, I'm not so interested right now in playing. So we, we see a runaway chase dynamic, but it's almost like it's a little bit more one-sided. For some of the instances, it doesn't actually uh, result in a reinitiation of play. And that might just be because of their social pack dynamics that they don't find that every time this signal needs to happen, that they need to interact um, or they need to sort of react to it. Um, but that was one of the nuances that we saw with the wolves. And with the dingoes, we saw something actually very similar, um, except it was the opposite. It was that uh, the individual would play bow and then sort of would just leave it like that. And then the other hmm. individual would go off and do something else. So the interesting thing there is that uh, dingoes are uh, rewilded um, uh, dog species. Uh, so 5,000 years ago, ended up in, uh, in Australia and sort of rewilded themselves. And so it's, it's sort of fun to see that they align halfway-ish or somewhere in the middle between wolves and dogs, um, because evolutionarily it fits very well with their trajectory. Yeah. And with the wolves and the dingoes, just because they're, the, you know, they're actually living with, you know, conspecifics or, you know, other animals of their own species, you know, and so their their relationship with with the other, um, you know, with the others in their group, like, do you suspect that there's that there's any relationship between the structure of, of their of their social group and the play bows in terms of, um, and I know I'm getting into, uh, you know, uh, the 
yeah, just sort of like, do, do, does their relationship sort of impact who does play bows to who? Yeah, so um, we actually had really great data from the Wolf paper because the um, Wolf Science Center in Vienna actually records um, affiliation scores between members. So how affiliative or how maybe bonded uh, two individuals are. And they have these scores for all of their individuals. And um, while I don't think we published the findings on it, we actually didn't find that there was any effect of that or of rank. Hmm. But that being said, if you look um, at the list of dyads in the papers and you see who is play bowing, um, you can see that some dyads play bow more than others. And you can also see that sometimes in a dyad, it's not a 50-50 split of uh, I play bow, you play bow, I play bow, you play bow. Sometimes it's really one individual that play bows the whole time. And the other one just is the the partner. And so what that means is... um, is maybe there's a, a reason for this. I'm not quite sure what it is, but it could certainly depend on maybe who is perceived to be more, uh, maybe higher ranking or, or dominant in the in the interaction, or it could just be a personal preference. Maybe that individual that's play bowing all the time in that diet play bows most of the time when he or she is playing with anyone. Maybe that's just a, an individual preference that you just like to always play bow constantly it's like uh the class clown almost or or like like everyone has that you know that one or two members in their in their group of friends that's always joking or always doing stuff or <laughs> always trying to initiate you know silly things so yeah that that'd be sort of interesting if it was more like a characteristic as opposed you know yeah that's that's really cool yeah who knows uh, some research who, there if anybody wants to look into personality and and play bows uh i'm sure you'd find some very interesting results yeah. And uh, so why do you think you see like a difference between like the wolves and the dogs and the season mentioned the dingoes were sort of halfway in between the, the, the dogs and the wolves. Um, so I'm kind of curious if you, if, if, if you sort of suspect why there might be a difference there. Um, and then also sort of interspecies interaction. So I think, you know, most, most owners, you know, have had their dog play bow to them, or you can like almost do it at your dog and they'll do it back. I've seen them do it. To, I've seen my dogs do it with my cat. And then um, on your, on your Twitter feed, I think you did one with a coyote and a badger, I think yeah. it was or something. Um, so, and I'll make sure to put your Twitter handle in the, in the references as well. So people can have that. Cause you do post some really amazing videos on your Twitter feed with play bows. Um, so yeah, so I'm just kind of curious about why there might be a difference between the species and then sort of why is like or why do we see it sometimes sort of across species as well yeah um so no one's really looked into why you might see it across species so this is sort of the there's one other paper where they looked at play bows in uh, dogs and coyotes and in wolves and and so it does seem to be that it is the signal that social carnivores do use um why i, I don't know why there's um similarity in how that works but the examples that you're bringing up these inner um specific examples they do exist um, there's also some great research by Nicola Rooney on um, how dogs respond to human-given playbows. So you're completely right. If you go home and your dog is there and you get on all fours and you slam your forearms uh, gently, not too loud, but on the ground um, and sort of do like a wiggle back and forth, you might find that your dog playbows right back at you or they may look at you in confusion. Either way, it's it's great and hilarious. And you, be sure to videotape it because you'll get a, a great kick out of it later. Um, the badger example, the coyote badger example that you're talking about, this is something that sort of went viral a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's a coyote and a badger that are cooperatively hunting together. And what I didn't know before I saw that video is that this is something that uh, has been observed in the literature. Coyotes and hmm. badgers cooperatively hunt. They go out and... Weird. Yeah, they, they, they do um, interact with one another. But the interesting thing in that case is that I don't necessarily know how a badger would play bow. I can see how a coyote play bows. And so then the question sort of becomes, it, how is that signal then interpreted by the badger? And how does it learn that if it doesn't have pr- previous experience or it isn't built into their sort of bodily repertoire of behaviors to do? But somehow this is something that seemingly um, maybe has evolved sort of within that 
relation as well. And, and so somehow that signal is generally interpreted as being a, a playful, come with me or, or do something um, kind of behavior, which is interesting uh, within itself that it doesn't matter if your partner is the same species, it still seems to work. Um, yeah. But yeah, who knows where we'll get tons and tons of videos where we can code interspecific play vows. Um, yeah, right. And it's funny in that video too, because in that tunnel, they were like in a tunnel or a pipe or something. It's funny how you mentioned come with me, because when I saw that, that was sort of the behavior that I saw, like it was even the play about, but then sort of like the weight was sort of shifted away and was kind of waiting for the badger to come, um, to come with him or her. And then it was like, yeah, that, yeah. And, and, and sort of, yeah, how the badger interprets that, or if the badger's just like, okay, silly. Like, I don't know what that means, but cool. Like, <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? But, um, but, but it's yeah, great. yeah. It's yeah. the so exact Hollywood. same thing that we see in the dogs and the wolves and the dingoes. It's, it's a play bow that's followed by sort of a runaway chase scenario, which is kind of similar to what this badger and the coyote are doing. The coyote's like, okay, I do this, you come with me. And that's what we yep. see for all these other canids too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, very cool. So let's get into just sort of with the before we move on to the visual perception. So, so with playbell, sometimes we like anecdotally, I think myself and and other trainers, um, sometimes we'll also see playbells in situations where it's not always just sort of like in in this in these play type situations. It's like sometimes you can almost see it where like if a dog is a little bit nervous or a little bit unsure of a situation, it's almost like it becomes like a coping mechanism to be like almost like okay, I don't really know what to do and I mean no harm and this is what I'm going to do. You know, do you have any thoughts on sort of, you know, where it's not just used in context of, of playing? Yeah, so you bring up a really good point, which is that in all of the papers uh, that I'm aware of and all of the ones that we have written, we're looking at a very, very specific context. We're looking in interactions that are already playful. So that's not to say that you don't see play bows in, in totally different contexts, and I'll always be the first to say that there are certainly play bows that exist outside of the context of play. And it makes sense. You have a different, you have the same signal that within a different context might mean something else. Um, and, and so I don't necessarily know what it means outside of play. I do have a personal favorite. Um, my personal favorite is the, I am chewing on this toy and I have forgotten my booty is up in the air. That is probably uh, my favorite uh, play bow context outside of, of play. It's it, And it just stays up there. I, it blows my mind because I, I often find that that position can't be so comfortable to sustain. But they just, it's like they've forgotten that the rear end is actually present. Um, but it, that also means that you can see it in, for example, the um, instances which you've noted. So potentially when a dog is a little bit uncomfortable or, or insecure. Um, and that just, currently there's no data on, on what that means. Personally, I, I'd like to think that that's a dog that may be taking a signal that it, it understands or recognizes has a, a certain outcome in one context and might be sort of trying to figure out, is this an appropriate time for me to do this? <laughs> and probably sometimes it is and probably other times it, it isn't. But it, 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 that might be where that level of uncomfort is, is stemming from. Um, but once again, another great area for anyone who wants to go look at dog play bows, that's a great context to see whether or not this function um, is comparable. And, and my assumption would be that it, it's not, that it's, it means something totally different um, or, or sort of has a, a different um, outcome when it's not used in a playful context. Yeah. And it's like a good, really good example I can give is um, my, my pit bull boxer mix buster before he passed away. He came to... Um, my wife, Sarah, took him to come watch one of my ice hockey games. And when we come off the ice, we're all in our gear and our helmets. And, you know, we kind of look like we're aliens, I'm sure, to a dog. We've never seen that before. And you could see him sort of be like, this is weird. And where like some dogs would run away or other dogs might bark and say, like, you know, keep your space. He kind of saw it and just, yeah, went into like a play bow. So you can tell he was like, this is really awkward and weird. And that was like, um, and I've seen that in like other situations like that. So yeah, it, it'll be interesting because I think there are times where, and sort of like the the function behind it, like, mm. you know, is it like a coping mechanism? Is it just, you know, so instead of running away or, or you know, it's, it's almost like sometimes I feel like there's something in between fight or flight, which is like, yeah. it's like be silly. 
And it's like, um, just to kind of diffuse the situation, but um, yeah, who knows? Well, there is also, we've never really found evidence for this hypothesis um, within a playful context, but there is a hypothesis that has been set forth uh, that suggests that maybe the bow is not actually a, a signal of some sort that indicates I want to play, but maybe it is just a position in which you can get into either A, better escape from who mm. you are entering, interacting with, or B, to better attack who you're interacting with. So that might be sort of a, a context maybe in which that might be happening. You might uh, sort of play bow because ah, if you need to leave because Hockey Man and all his gear is very scary, then you can simply just bolt the other direction and you're already halfway down and, and can easily do that. Or if you decide that uh, Hockey Man and all his gear is a little bit too scary and you want to just go for it, that might be the position <laughs> in which to better attack. Yep, yep, definitely. Uh, cool. Yeah, it, it, it was super cute either way because he actually had fun. He had fun with everyone and he was an appropriate dog to bring in that situation because he was sort of bomb proof with any weird things that he would run into. Um, yeah, I wouldn't recommend bringing a dog to a hockey rink if, if they're not really comfortable <laughs> with novel novel situations or people. Um, cool. So let's jump into the work on visual perception. Uh, so I think the one big one and kind of going through your your research, which is just utterly fascinating. And I'll make sure to get the links to your, um, to your articles out on the, um, in, in the episode references. But I think the big one, and, and I mean, even for me, just because I, I think a lot of this research is sort of new, because you're, you're sort of really running with it here, is that the common belief that dogs have, you know, vision that's similar to red, green color blindness in humans. And we hear this a lot. So, and it looks like some of your research is trying to tackle that a little bit. So, is that accurate? Um, if not, sort of where did the hypothesis come from and, and what are we learning about it? Yeah, so it's actually, it, it's an interesting question because when you look at the literature, it seems like for quite some time, we just assumed that dogs were totally colorblind, that they only saw the world in, in black and white. And that was kind of, kind of it. And then somehow this, this idea of, okay, dogs are red, green, colorblind came to light. And odds are is that that stems from the fact that dogs are, are dichromats, meaning that they have uh, two cone photoreceptor cells, um, and they have spectral peaks, so sensitivities and in a sense. have three, right? Just yeah. to clarify for yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they have, dogs have sensitivities to certain spectral peaks. Uh, they have two sensitivities in a sense that map onto two of ours, but we have a third one. So that's where we are trichromats. We have that third sensitivity to another color. And so probably what happened is that we said, okay, if we are trichromats and dogs are dichromats and they're missing one, then they're missing that one that's for red and green. So that means that they, that they can't see red and green. Um, and so the thing that came along with that is, is all these interpretations of if you throw a red ball on a green grass or a landscape or something like that, uh, the assumption then became that you needed to swap out all of your red toys for something else because that ball would completely disappear into the grass behind them. Um, I'm not going to say that there isn't truth to that. Um, they do seem to have uh, red-green color blindness similar to a human that's red-green color blind. But there, it's important to also recognize that there are other aspects that come into play when we are interpreting the world around us. So just because something matches the same color as its background doesn't mean that it reflects light the same way, doesn't mean that it has certain contours that differ from the background. And so what that all means is that it may be very, very similar in color, but its, its texture, what it's made of, its, its shape, all of that can provide additional cues for you to use to figure out that, oh, that is in fact not a part of the background. That is its, its own entity. And so while it may be more difficult to see, it's, it's thinking about it more in terms of, okay, that's a, maybe a dark shade of gray or beige. And the object that's on top of it, that red ball sitting on the green grass is actually just, it's another shade of beige. But you can probably see it because it has curves, it, it, it might reflect light differently. And so it's important to, to sort of recognize that even while the color may be perceived differently, that there, are, that there are other cues that dogs can also be using to figure out what's going on. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, cool. And so you've 
done some work using illusions, which, you know, illusions are, are like optical illusions, I guess. Uh, and something that, you know, I think most people find really interesting. And you've looked at four different types of illusions, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce <laughs> them right now, because uh, I'll, I'll make a fool of myself. <laughs> um, but can you describe sort of, you know, why you're looking at optical illusions, sort of how dogs and, and humans differ? Um, and, and why does using illusions help us understand how dogs are seeing things? Yeah, so uh, illusions are kind of uh, funny because it's one of those things that you you can have a conversation with someone and you can recognize how they might see the world and how that might differ from yours or also how you might share similarities um, in understanding the world around you. So the illusions that we're primarily are studying, they're geometric visual illusions, which means that they um, vary gen generally in, in shape. Um, and so what that means is that somehow in a certain context, you are presented with two identically sized, identically shaped stimuli. And if you were to see those two objects without any type of background, you would be able to tell me those are two identically sized objects. They are identical in shape. That's not hard. What's hard is that when we put them in a certain context, so we might add some cues to the scenario, we might add lines, we might add circles, we are adding something else to that visual scene and now when we've added those things, your brain interprets the retinal information. So the information that you are getting from your eye, and it is sort of thinking, okay, in every other instance in which I see this sort of visual information, I adapt these pre-existing um, interpretations onto them. So in a sense, it's sort of like you have like a little mind hack that for 95% of the cases, when you see information like this visually, it makes sense to sort of interpret it in that way. However, illusions are the, the sort of instance in which that 5% where it doesn't make sense to put any of those preconceived notions onto that visual information. So you are sort of um, overcompensating for this. And that means that those two identically shaped stimuli that you were able to tell were exactly the same size and exactly the same shape, now in an illusion, you're being tricked. Your mind is telling you, oh, one of these is actually larger than the other. And so you can look at it in this visual scene with all of these other cues. And instead of saying these are the same, you now tell me that that one is larger than the other one. Um, so that's generally what these illusions are. And why we're doing this is that it's, it's a sort of a very, uh, illusions are in some cases cognitively impenetrable, meaning that even when you know that you are staring at an illusion and someone tells you that those two circles, let's say, are exactly the same size, that even though you're physically looking at it and someone is telling you that you cannot unsee that one looks larger than the other. Um, so that's why we're interested in looking at illusions because you can visually look at them. And if I, I ask you to report it in a certain way, you can tell me one is larger than the other. And that technically doesn't require a verbal communication or a verbal response. If I train an animal to tell me which of two things is larger or smaller by touching that stimulus, I don't need to get them to tell me in words um, what they're seeing. And so the interesting thing is, is and what we're doing here is we're, we've trained the dogs to tell us, okay, what is larger or smaller? And we do this until they have really good accuracy with it, with um, size differences that get to, you know, very small differences between the stimuli. And then we put them in illusions and we sort of see, okay, if, if dogs don't see illusions, then they should be at chance when discriminating between two identically sized circles that we see one being larger than the other um, when, when we see them because our brain adapts sort of these preconceptions to it. So if dogs also have these preconceptions, then they should in, uh, sort of respond the same way as we do. Um, and that's mm. ultimately what we're doing and what we're trying to figure out. And how do you ask a dog which circle is bigger than the other, for example? Yeah, this... Um, <laughs> we started this project and we, we realized that there was a lot of training that actually needed to happen for the people <laughs> involved, not for the dogs, actually. Um, so when we started, it took us quite some time, but we started with target training. So we'd target train the dogs to touch our hands. We'd then extend this to using a wand. Um, 
We'd then remove the wand and put it farther across the room. And all of this was rewarded with sort of a, an automated or a treat dispenser. And then we made a special tunnel box because we wanted to make sure that the dogs were not looking at any of the humans because as most of your listeners are, are aware of, dogs are really good at understanding human cues. And so we wanted to eliminate the possibility that we were somehow cueing the dogs. And we, we made this tunnel and at the end of the tunnel was a screen. And so once the dogs were target trained, we put that um, sort of wand that they were uh, trained to uh, boop, it's my scientific term, um, we'd put this at the end and turn the screen on and we slowly transferred the wand to a black circle on, on, a, on a, just a regular LCD screen. And once the dogs were booping the screen with just one circle, we introduced the fact that there could be two circles. And then we either trained them one of two ways. So the rule for some was select the larger stimulus, so the larger circle of the two, and for others it was select the smaller. And so once the dogs were really good at this, um, we then started presenting them with all these different illusions like you were talking about, the Ponzo illusion, the Ebbinghaus Titchener illusion, the Ernstine illusory contour illusion, the Del Buff illusion. We were able to present them with all these cool contexts in which humans are susceptible to these illusions. And now we could see, okay, are the dogs responding in a human-like way, demonstrating that they're susceptible like humans? Or are they at chance saying potentially that they're not interpreting this um, information post-retinally, so after it comes into the eye? Or maybe they're doing something completely different and they see this illusion in a totally different way, um, opposite of what uh, humans might see. And so what did you find? Are they similar to humans or are there differences? <laughs> Great question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're still trying to figure it out, actually. It, it, the moral of the story is that it depends on the type of illusion. So mm. for some of the illusions, we noticed that they demonstrated reverse susceptibility, um, meaning that what we see as being the larger stimulus, dogs are actually seeing as being the smaller one. Um, and so wow. we're, we're trying to figure out what exactly that might mean in those contexts. Um, but then there are other instances that you, we saw null susceptibility, meaning that dogs were performing at 50%, um, selecting the large one just as often as they were selecting the small one, or what we would see as being the larger versus the small one. So the dogs, in a sense, were recognizing or noticing that those two stimuli were, in fact, equally sized. Um, and what we think is going on there is that within the, the, the instances where we see null susceptibility, so the dogs performing at chance, we often saw that that was happening in illusions that invoked linear perspective cues. So what does that mean? That's the idea that when you're looking at train tracks receding into the distance, that you can sort of recognize the depth that's associated with that. Um, and so when we see null susceptibility with that, we sort of started wondering, okay, is, is, is this a depth perception question? Do we need to start looking at how, whether or not dogs have depth perception? They should. Um, and ultimately, what we think might be going on is that um, evolutionarily, there may be contexts in which it's important to be susceptible to illusions, and there might be other contexts in which it doesn't necessarily matter. So we're kind of tall. We stand, you know, four to seven feet, let's say, above the ground. We're faced with a lot of street corners and a lot of uh, angles and a lot of receding roads in our daily lives. And while dogs are also faced with that, that sort of... Um, visual information, maybe they're interpreting it in a different way than we are. And so that might be explaining why they're not susceptible in, in these instances. But it's certainly an area where we need to figure out what's going on. Um, and so actually, one of the things that a lot of researchers, including what we're sort of working on at the moment, is trying to figure out, can we remove the intensive training from this paradigm and look at what dogs do when you give them mm -hmm. a context? in which they're not trained to response one way or the other, because maybe we've trained them to just ignore certain features and they're hmm. only focused on what's being presented and ignoring the contextual cues um, that we uh, sort of are viewing as a whole rather than its individual parts. Yeah. That, yeah, that's interesting. Like, t yeah, taking a look at that out in their, in their natural habitat, wherever that is. I find sometimes too, when I, when I watch dogs, you know, especially like you're out on hikes or different things. Like the one thing I always notice about them is I find that they, 
and, and again, this is anecdotal, but man, they pick up movement so easily. Like, whereas like, like, like they'll pick up things and I'll look and then there'll be like a little squirrel moving <laughs> or, and again, they might be hearing it or I doubt they're smelling it from in, in these contexts, but um, yeah. And sort of that, that thing about they are a different height. They, they had to perform different functions and sort of that evolutionary pressure on them and sort of how that changed, how they see is uh, really interesting. And especially the, the difference between sort of the, the lab type settings and then out in the, like out in the field. Um, and most of your research, I believe, has been been in the lab, correct? Are, are you actually looking at going out into the field? I'd love to. I, I, I don't at the moment know necessarily how we would do it, um, but we've been, we've been trying different paradigms. We had a fun one this last semester, uh, which we called our baloney study, uh, where a, a student was presenting different sized pieces of baloney um, in certain contexts. And then she presented an illusion with two identically sized pieces of baloney. And the idea was, okay, maybe, maybe we don't need to train the dogs to do this size discrimination task. Maybe we can just present them with baloney and <laughs> they will be ecstatic. Well, yeah, they were ecstatic to the point where they didn't care which one was the larger or the smaller because they were just like, it's baloney. This baloney. is amazing. <laughs> uh, sign me up for this study in the future. Um, and so it was a great hit with the dogs, not really great for us to disentangle what was actually happening. Um, but we're hoping to try it in the future, maybe with a reward that isn't as exciting as baloney, um, something that, uh, maybe they it can inhibit, uh, their, uh, over, uh, aroused state so that we can actually see them, uh, process what's going on, um. Poor Nicolette ended up smelling like bologna for weeks on end. <laughs> <laughs> that, and that, that was your research assistant or thesis yeah, student? Yeah, this was yeah. one of our master's students. And the poor poor thing uh, had to take the ferry and the bus to Staten Island every day. So she she was always uh, messaging me from the bus saying, I think I smell really bad. I think I smell like bologna. I hope these people around me are okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I've definitely got on the subway before where like, I'm like, man, something smells in here. And then I realized because of my training, I have like a pocket full of like old hot dogs or something. <laughs> um, and it was me stinking up the subway. Um, cool. So, um, so, so based on that, so what sort of, what, what future research do you have planned sort of based on all of this uh, cool stuff that, that, that you're doing and, and what, what you've currently sort of learned? Like what, what, what future research are you excited about right now? Yeah, we're, so we're currently expanding our research on illusions. That's definitely one thing. So that will always be something that I have a personal interest in. Um, since we talked about Playbows, I can tell you that we're expanding that project as well. So currently we um, are doing a infant puppy sample um, oh most my God. Of, yeah, very, very cute videos. Like, um, how, like how old are the puppies? Three to eight weeks. Oh, so, wow. Really young. So we're looking, we've always had the, I want to say we've always had around like the four to seven month range, but we've never had the younger age group. And and so what I'm wondering is also when does this develop? So when do dogs start play bowing? Um, and how do they sort of come into that behavior? And so I have a great student, um, Michelle, who's working on uh, looking at videos um, uh, of these really, really young guys, and they're absolutely hilarious. There's a couple of videos that I posted on Twitter of uh, this one dog in particular, this little infant, who's just the sassiest thing that you've ever seen. Um, but great examples of playbouts at a really, really young age. And then uh, we took some videos last summer at the Bronx Zoo looking at African wild dogs. And the reason- oh, I love them. Yeah, they're, they're phenomenal. Um, and so they're really far removed in a sense evolutionarily from um, domestic dogs and, and wolves and dingoes. And so they do play though, I can tell you that. Um, now we're trying to see if that matches up with what we think the signal should look like in other social carnivores. So um, I think that kind of answers some of our questions that we were talking about earlier about, you know, how does the signal evolve and why is it so common? Hopefully we'll have an answer about how this uh, signal looks in, in these guys. Um, and then other fun things that we're doing, we've recently gotten into looking at um, shelter dogs, particularly in New York City. So how can we improve the lives of, of shelter dogs in our backyards, essentially? And so we've been doing some cool stuff about looking at where do these dogs come from? Where do they end up? Um, does the mm. removal of breed labels on kennel cards increase adoptions? Um, 
what else have we been looking at? We've, we're currently um, working on a cool project where we're changing lighting conditions to see if you uh, take out the fluorescent lights and put in something that doesn't flicker as much, um, does yep. that actually improve sort of the stress behaviors that you might see or even the sound levels um, in the kennels? And, and can that indirectly make the shelter a less stressful place? Um, Definitely for people, at least. And I would say probably for the dogs as well. I mean, and yeah, I think that's a great one because we noticed that in our facilities as well where, you know, yeah, we work really hard to keep it quiet um, for the people and the dogs. Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah, so we'll see. That project is currently ongoing. We're we're trying it out. So hopefully soon we'll we'll have a better idea as to whether or not this actually works. But um, dogs technically should be more sensitive to uh, sort of flickers from TV screens, from lights, from computers. Um, They're Mm -hmm. more sensitive technically than humans are. Um, So if we can already, or if some humans can already observe a flicker in a room filled with fluorescence, you can imagine that that must be something that the dogs are also perceiving and probably more intensely are perceiving. Um, So if we can make that situation a little bit less stressful for them, um, that's always a, a good thing. Yeah, definitely. And it's a great example of how this is why understanding visual perception matters because it can directly impact welfare, um, you know. Of course. And it has implications not just in the shelter, but you can think about vet clinics. You can think about classrooms. You can think dog training facilities. You can Your dog's at home. (laughs) Your dog's at home. Yeah, you should probably not have fluorescence at home. It's probably A, not great for you, but also get get something something nicer, some more (laughs) ambiance. Yep. Your dog yeah. might appreciate it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, and we've, we, we've, yeah, I think there, that that's getting a lot of traction, I think, in the industry now as well, um, thankfully. So, um, and hopefully that'll continue to impact w- what we do and keep me- making things better just because they do live in a very human-centered world. So um, understanding how they, how they feel and understand things and see things and perceive things and make things easier for them. Cause we already put a lot of pressure on dogs in our society. So Definitely. if there's things we can do to make it easier for them. Um, cool. And then, so I think one of the questions that people ask, and I think, you know, I always hear clients thinking it's really cool with the thinking dog center. And I know there's other labs around the country. So if people are uh, like people always say, oh man, it'd be so cool to take part in research. And I'm like, well, the good news is I think a lot of times you can, um, depending on, on your dog and the time that, that, that you have. So if people want to want to get involved in research, so, you know, pet owners at home want to get involved in research, you know, a, how can they do it, you know, sort of with you in New York city. And then if they're not in New York city, what, what are some places that they could potentially look? Yeah. So we operate, um, year round, some other, uh, dog centers and dog labs, might not, but we we do. And so the nice thing about that is, is that you can find us either on Twitter, you can find us on Facebook. Uh, we're also on Instagram. Uh, you just type in Thinking Dog Center, and you should see um, us pop up. Uh, and then we'll have a sign up link. And, and that sign up link will take you directly to our website where you can uh, enroll your dog at Hunter College, and uh, (laughs) you fill out a a form, and it tells us a little bit about your dog. And the reason why we want to know a little bit about your dog is that we want to bring in dogs that are going to be happy to work with us. We don't unnecessarily want to bring in a dog that isn't going to have fun in our studies. However, we recognize that every dog owner wants to do fun, enriching, problem-solving games with their dog. And so um, one of our hopes in the future is even if you do sign up and you tell me that you're worried about bringing your dog to the center because of certain um, quirks that your dog might have, or you, you don't generally bring your dog on the subway and you're worried it's going to be stressful, you can let me know. And we are hoping to have some citizen science projects in the future where we can reach out to you and say, hey, if you've got some cups at home and some treats, you can be the experimenter and you can do this study at home with your dog. So we're hoping to expand out beyond um, what we do in the center space itself. But generally, we're looking for dogs that are four months um, or older. They should be healthy. And generally, we want them to be people friendly. Um, The other caveat is that they should be up to date on their vaccinations. So when your dog comes and visits us, your dog comes with you and there's no other dogs in our center. Um, You will generally never see another dog. We want to focus all of our undivided attention on you and your pup. 
and you get to play with um, with our uh, students. Your dog gets to play. We give them lots of treats. We have lots of fun things. And most of our studies are actually one visit. So if you have one hour, um, you know, across your year, you can easily sign up and, and find a convenient time to come in. We're located um, on a 41st between 9th and 10th. So that's the Times Square exit, <laughs> middle of Manhattan. Um, <laughs> but it, it, um, it's most middle New York City dogs are used to it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so generally we just want a, a dog that's going to be happy in a new environment and we're happy to work with you too. So it's not often that your dog is going to get to go to a fun dog center. So we understand that when they come in, it, it may be a little reminiscent of the vet's office. And that's the last thing that we want. We want this to be a fun, amazing place. So we'll spend time getting used to the rooms and throwing, throwing toys and treats and giving lots of cuddles if that's what your dog likes. Um, but we want this to be a really fun, positive experience. And if you yeah. end up enjoying it, you can always come back for more. Sometimes we have long-term studies, so you can come back once a week for a couple of weeks and get the most out of what we have to offer. But we're really happy to to work with you. Yeah, that's great. And I, I can definitely just, you know, uh, having clients who have gone and helped you guys out, they have nothing but good things to say. So if anyone out there is you know, interested in doing this and having some fun with your dog and then contributing to, you know, canine research. It's, it's, uh, I highly recommend it. So yeah, when we'll have all your, the thinking dog center, if you type it in, it should come up, um, in Google on Twitter or Instagram, we'll, we'll get those links in there. And then for people not in New York city, I think, you know, you can always just Google search for like cognitive canine cognition labs or dog research labs. There's, there's, Cause there's a lot of even new ones opening up kind of around the country and, and around the world. So this is definitely not a New York city specific thing. You just have to ch check out your local universities and see if they have it. Definitely. That would be the way that I would suggest. And you can always send us a message and tell us where, what area you're located in. And we will let you know if there's any dog centers near you. Yeah. Awesome. <clears throat> so perfect. Uh, so the last question, so this is a question I ask all of my guests. So based on all of your experience and all that you've learned, if you could share one piece of advice with pet owners everywhere, what is it? That's a really good one. Um, I actually think that my piece of advice is something that I often forget as well and sort of have to be reminded of frequently. And, and that's that dogs are, if you think about it, dogs have to be very trusting of us. Um, and the best or one of the most common examples that I, I generally use to describe this because I study vision in particular is um, jumping up into the back seat of a car. So if your dog has never done this before, it doesn't matter what size, but you're tapping something, you're tapping that seat and you can see that that's a seat and you can see that that's a solid surface back there. But your dog probably is not as tall as you and probably cannot see over and so you're asking, uh, you know, your furry companion to hop up and trust you and, and jump up there without knowing what is what is physically present. And, and so I think that's something that we often forget. And, and I know that every once in a while I do this and I'm like, OK, come on, Sammy, like you need to get up here. I'm getting annoyed like this is taking forever. Um, but then I, I do sort of take a moment to think that sometimes the world could be can look very different for a human than it does for a dog. And and they see a totally different side, um, even though they live in the exact same environment. So I think it's important to consider that they're, what they see are, are, may not just differ, but just simple things like where you're located in space may determine what you see and sort of keeping that within in uh, perspective while you're working with your dog, while you're training, interacting, doing all of those sorts of things is important because they seem to be very good at being understanding of ours or at least sort of behaving in a way where, where they want to do things that please us um, because generally they get rewarded with snacks and yummy things. But I think it's also important for us to take a moment to recognize that um, what they see is not exactly what we see. And we should understand that there's a disconnect there and um, be aware. Yeah, that's great. And, and yeah, it, it's almost like don't, you know, don't take, you know, you, you, they trust us so much as it is. And yeah, it's like, 
you know, we obviously take advantage of that, but making sure we're being fair to them. Um, I remember one time hearing that it's almost like, I feel like to dogs sometimes we're like elves, like where we, like, like where we can do all these amazing things and open doors and do all these things. But then, you know, we, you know, we ask them to do things sometimes that are just, yeah, you can totally see why it would make them nervous or uncomfortable. And they still, a lot of times will go ahead and do it. So if we can take that time to give them a little bit more time to process it and do it in a way that, that they're comfortable with. I think that's, yeah, that's really good advice actually. Um, Cool. Um, Was there anything else that we didn't touch on? I don't think so. It was really nice to get to chat with you about all the fun things that we've been doing. And and generally I love talking about dogs. So this was an absolute blast. Thank you. Awesome. Well, maybe after some more research, we'll, we'll get you back here someday. Love to. Okay. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you.